Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm producer Ruth Brown, joined by Rebecca Boone of the Associated Press. This week, we discuss the death penalty in Idaho after Governor Brad Little denied on Friday the commutation recommendation that was issued for Gerald Pizzuto Jr. Um, Rebecca, tell me, who is Gerald Pizzuto? Gerald Pizzuto is 65. Um, He's been on death row for 35 years after he was convicted for the July 1985 slayings of two gold prospectors at a cabin north of McCall. Um, Dell and Berta Herndon. Um, Berta was 58. Dell, her nephew, was 37. They were prospecting in the area. And prosecutors said Pizzuto was armed with a rifle, went to the Herndon's cabin, tied their wrists behind their back, and tied up their legs and then um, in an effort to steal their money and that he didn't actually shoot them, but rather bludgeoned them both. On November 30th, he was granted a commutation hearing, which is relatively rare. Uh, the Commission of Pardons and Parole voted ultimately four to three to recommend his uh, sentence be changed to life without parole. Uh, the governor denied that. So. Mr. Pizzuto is terminally ill. He already has advanced bladder cancer and several medical conditions. And so the the commissioners that voted in favor of his uh, commutation wrote that it was an act of mercy, not that they doubted his guilt. How rare are commutation hearings even granted, let alone um, a commutation recommended? Well, um, commutation hearings are often requested. Um, In Idaho, we've only had less than a handful of um, executions within the past, you know, 30 odd years. So it's a little bit difficult to judge the rarity or or commonness of of them actually being granted. But we know that nationally, um, clemency requests are are very rarely granted. So there's fewer than two on a national perspective granted each year since about 1976. And that's according to the Death Penalty Information Center. Uh, The last executions conducted in Idaho, of course, were those of Paul Ezra Rhodes in November of 2011 and Richard Levitt in June of 2012. The only form of execution allowed in Idaho is death by lethal injection. Uh, Both you and I were serving as witnesses in those executions. Because execution um, is only done by lethal injection, can you walk me through what are some of the issues around obtaining the chemicals used in death by lethal injection? Sure. Well, first of all, um, the chemicals that they use are chemicals that are used in some cases for medication, for surgeries, in, in obviously much lower amounts to sedate people or, or um, you know, get them ready to perform other procedures. But um, so you can get them, if you're using them for a healthcare process, from the pharmaceutical companies that make them. But several years ago, all of the pharmaceutical companies said that they would no longer supply these medications to departments of correction for the purpose of execution. And that's made it exceedingly hard for um, prisons to get a hold of. In some cases, um, prisons have gotten these from compounding pharmacies. Um, At least one of those compounding pharmacies was later uh, put out of business. It had a bunch of issues where um, regulators said they weren't compounding the drugs correctly, things like that. Um, In Idaho previously, we know that at least for one execution, Idaho prison officials actually met a supplier in a parking lot and exchanged like a briefcase of money for these drugs that were um, in preparation for an execution. So it's it's a really um, 
it's a it's certainly a legal gray area um, with a lot of sort of ethical and moral questions that are co consistently brought up in the courts, as well as legal questions on on whether these drugs um, appropriate, whether they're whether they're effective, whether they work to execute somebody humanely or not. If you can do a humane execution, which is also obviously a debate, um, so it's just kind of a legal quagmire. What do you think the importance of knowing where these chemicals are obtained is? Um, I mean, the defense will argue that the FDA does not verify uh, the safety and effectiveness of these chemicals. What do you see as the importance of knowing where these chemicals are obtained? Well, I think in any government action, um, transparency is paramount, right? So when the state puts somebody to death, they are doing that on behalf of the people of Idaho. So they're doing it on behalf of you and on behalf of me and on behalf of the crime victims, but on behalf of all of the residents here, they're acting, you know, basically in our stead in some way. And so um, generally, uh, people who argue for greater transparency say that, um, that the, the public can't decide um, effectively decide how executions, if, they, if they're be, being done justly, if they're being done effectively, if they're a thing that, that the public wants to continue without knowing all of the ins and outs. And that includes knowing where the drugs are com coming from and what drugs are being used and how they're being administered and all that. On the other hand, prison officials do say, you know, people that they'll have increasingly um, difficult times accessing these drugs and that they won't even be able to perhaps carry out executions at all, which they are required by state law to do when somebody is condemned and gets a death warrant signed, if they can access these drugs. And they say they increase scrutiny and kind of the fear that uh, providers won't want the bad PR maybe of providing these drugs to prisons will just make the supply completely dry up. What's the media's role in ensuring that transparency? Well, you know, we're there to be the eyes and the ears of um, the public. So we are, um, we're not there to, to decide these big issues. We're there to give the public full information so that they can decide. Uh, in the past, um, the AP and other news organizations around the state have actually pushed for increased access to executions. Um, and, and we won. Uh, the, the circuit courts have generally held that um, the public, through the media has a right to see um, the execution from start to finish. That includes the inmate being brought in to um, the execution room. Uh, in our case, the IVs being inserted into the end. You know, a lot of these, um, these condemned men and women are elderly in many cases. Um, they may have other medical problems that make inserting an IV and other things difficult. Um, that's all part of the execution process. And so the media does fight to be able to witness that on behalf of the public so the public can decide how they feel about execution related matters. Sure. Mr. Pizzuto's case uh, moving forward. Yesterday, Mr. Pizzuto's attorneys challenged the governor's decision. I believe they went so far as to call the governor's decision to uh, shoot down the commutation recommendation unconstitutional. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and this is, I think, going to be really interesting to watch play out in courts, assuming it moves forward. Um, 
Pazuta's legal team with the Federal Defenders Services of Idaho uh, say that the Idaho Constitution grants the governor the ability to offer a reprieve or a temporary delay of an execution, but that it doesn't actually allow the governor to like reinstate an execution if a if a clemency board has recommended commutation. However, there's a part of state law, state code, that says a recommendation for commutation in certain cases, including death penalty cases, isn't actually official until the governor signs off on it. Um, the Federal Defender Services of Idaho says that law is actually not constitutional and so should be overthrown. We've seen that happen in some other laws that don't actually, that the um, courts decide don't actually meet the, the strictures or the um, rigor of the constitution. Um, we don't know if that'll happen here. So, so we are waiting to see. Uh, meanwhile, as of this morning, a death warrant has not been signed. I did check uh, this morning. Uh, I think most of the defense team anticipates that will come soon. And at that point, the state will have, I believe, 30 days to carry out execution. Um, do you know what happens to some of the other pending cases that Mr. Bizzuto has? There are a couple cases in federal court. Right, um, many of those cases have come to a close, but there are still some that I believe are active. Um, I haven't checked them all. Uh, death penalty cases typically travel down several different kind of pronged pathways in the court. So it can be very complicated to keep track of all of them. But um, generally what we see in death penalty cases are, are um, a flurry of additional motions, requests to reconsider, um, all sorts of things, trying to, um, and, and efforts to, to speed up or hurry the process because um, if some of these things aren't fully, you know, some of the arguments over, um, I don't know, the type of medications used or things like that in some cases, um, if they aren't fully adjudicated before the execution, then of course, you know, that's kind of a question, but I don't know what that means, I guess. It, if it's moot or if it's just justice undone, it would depend on who, you're, who you talk to, I suppose. Should Mr. Pizzuto's uh, execution be carried out ultimately, it would be the first execution in Idaho in nearly 10 years. Does it raise a larger conversation about how frequently the sentence of death is imposed or discussions around capital punishment? I mean, do you see that happening in Idaho? It certainly brings those questions to the forefront, I think, whenever we have um, an execution looming or a potential execution looming. Um, the general public, like the media, we oftentimes, we sort of put these things on the back burner when they don't seem like imminent, right? Um, in Idaho, we have, I think, eight people on death row currently, including Pizzuto. Um, and most of them have been there for a very, very long time. Uh, and there are a lot of larger questions. You know, in Idaho, we've had people taken off of death row before um, because they've been exonerated in at least one case, um, because other problems have been found with their cases and they were, you know, commuted to a, a life in prison sentence or something else. Um, having covered the courts for a long time, I will say it certainly depends on like the prosecutor and the resources in a county. There are a lot of questions involving wealth and access and um, time availability, frankly, that, that 
weigh into these determinations on whether somebody even is faced with a potential death penalty case. I think it's always good to explore questions about whether the death penalty is being um, handled fairly. I, I think there are experts who say you can't really weigh apples to oranges though. You know, you can't say, um, well, so-and-so didn't get a death penalty, so this person shouldn't also get a death penalty or whatever. There's, there's certainly two sides to that coin, right? Um, but it's all worth exploring, I think, you know, why we have eight people, why they've been on there for decades, whether this is um, an effective and right use of resources, um, you know, and, and, and what that means for all involved, for victims' families, for um, the families of the condemned inmates, for the inmates themselves, for the attorneys on both sides who are, who are fighting this in the courts for decades, and especially for the public. Absolutely. If nothing else, I do think the legislature has started to explore the cost of the death penalty. They had the Office of Performance Evaluations do um, a cost assessment after the executions uh, that happened in 2011 and 2012. Uh, no legislation came after that, but they are starting to ask the question. Um, 27 states have the death penalty, 23 do not, and three states have a stay. So it's a pretty pretty equal split when you look across the country at who still carries out the death penalty and who doesn't. Um, do you think there's a, a motivation that um, this should, the death penalty should remain a valid sentencing option? Do you see a motivation to explore that question? I'm trying to think through the legislation that I've seen related to the death penalty in, in the past um couple of decades. And I think oftentimes what we've seen, or at least what stands out in my mind is things to make the process go easier um, on an administrative level, uh, rather than a, a real rethinking of whether it should occur at all um, with the legislature. I mean, we're, we're in a state that, that still has, uh, you know, a pretty strong tough on crime mindset. Um, and I think people who are exposed to um, or touched in some way by some of these really crimes, um, there, there's a huge emotional and, and life impact component there that I think legislators um, really relate to. Uh, I think it's oftentimes maybe more difficult to relate to the emotional and um, sort of family and relationship impacts on the other side of um, the courtroom. So I don't know if there's a lot of energy to continue exploring it, but I, I think it will continue to get more and more expensive, most likely, especially as these drugs continue to get harder to obtain. Absolutely. It's interesting that you talk about the emotion behind it, because when I think back on uh, Mr. Rhodes, Mr. Levitt, and Mr. Pizzuto, uh, their crimes were very different. There were different circumstances around what they were convicted of. There were different circumstances around those men's lives. And before Mr. Rhodes, I believe it had been 17 years since they'd done an execution. And so um, at that point, there was a new IDOC director. Um, there were new administration uh, members. So it's, it's interesting to see how they'll move forward at this point. But as far as Mr. Pizzuto goes, do you know what the next step moving forward is for him? Well, I think we need to watch and see if um, the the judge 
does uh, sign or reissue that death warrant or if um, if the motion from um, Mr. Pesuto's attorneys uh, is given an opportunity to to play out, whether they weigh that question of if the state law that allows that that calls on the governor to officially sort of approve the recommendation is in fact constitutional or not. They also did go before the Idaho Supreme Court on November 1st and an opinion uh, has not been issued yet from the Supreme Court. And so um, that'll make a difference as well. Right now, I think we'll wait and see. Uh, Rebecca Boone of the Associated Press, I appreciate your time and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more coverage of Mr. Bizzuto's case, follow Idaho Reports on Twitter and Facebook. You can see more online coverage at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. This podcast's conversation was recorded the morning of Tuesday, January 4th. On January 5th, a hearing was scheduled by Idaho District Judge Jay Gaskell in Mr. Pizzuto's case. Pizzuto's next hearing before Judge Gaskell is scheduled for 3 p.m. January 20th. As of roughly 10.30 a.m. January 5th, a new death warrant had not been issued for Mr. Pizzuto, and he remains in IDOC custody. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marcia Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. And remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.